Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be introducing the upcoming New South Wales state election with two guests. My first guest is Michael McGowan. Mick is New South Wales political correspondent for The Guardian. Hello, Mick. My second guest is Rodney Smith. Rodney is a professor of Australian politics at the University of Sydney. He's written a history of independence in New South Wales called Against the Machines and co-edited From Carr to Keneally, which analysed the last period of New South Wales Labor government. Hello, Rodney. Hi, Ben. So we'll be putting together three podcast episodes before Election Day and then a couple after Election Day. But for today, we want to get a broad picture about New South Wales politics. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to focus a bit on minor parties and independents. The current coalition government has been in power for almost 12 years after taking power in 2011. The government, then led by Gladys Berejiklian, won a third term in 2019 with a slim majority. That majority is now gone. Uh, the government is technically in a minority position now led by Dominic Perrottet. Mick, do you think the coalition will hold on to power at this election? Uh, well, that's obviously the million-dollar question. Um, I think, you know, to make the, the sort of really obvious point at the beginning, they have a really difficult path to any sort of electoral victory. There's, you know, there's sort of... The sort of general circumstances, as you said, of a 12-year-old government seeking re-election for a, a fourth time, which is never easy. Um, you have a Liberal brand, which has sort of taken a pretty significant whack with the public over the past 12 to 18 months. And, you know, a general sort of wheels falling off vibe that the party is giving off generally at the moment. Um, you're seeing a lot of sort of internal hits on different, different MPs and and you know, the, the vibe of disharmony is sort of swirling around and just the fact electorally that, as, as you just said, they have very, very little room to move in terms of the kind of swings they can suffer and still remain in government. So um, they're in a precarious position. Ha- having said that, if the Liberals can stop hunting one another for, for a second, they, they, they could take comfort from a few things. Um, one is the most recent polling that's sort of certainly showing that you know, the difference is narrowing and, and Dominic Perrottet is continuing to be the come up as the preferred premier in, in, in most polls. You've got a Labour opposition that while they, they, they've been disciplined, they haven't sort of, you know, set the hearts of flutter in the electorate, I don't think. Um, and also in terms of, you know, the if we're comparing to sort of last year in the federal poll where you saw this sort of, you know, broad sweep of independence, um, taking seats in the Liberal Party heartland, it's it's certainly much tougher uh, for them to, to do that in New South Wales, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more later. Rodney, how does this government compare right now in terms of how it's getting ready for this election to the well, this, the same government, but at the last couple of elections? Does it look really different to you? Well, every election looks slightly different. I think it, it looks in some ways similar in the sense that we've got a new Premier uh, who hasn't gone to the election, and that's been the case for the last two elections, of course, for the coalition. Uh, And and I think that's what's interesting about this election compared with other elections where governments have reached that kind of 10, 11, 12-year mark in New South Wales, uh, because they've mostly been governments where you've seen dominant premiers, figures like uh, Robert Askin and then Neville Rann and then more recently Bob Carr, retire or, or resign and uh, and in their place uh, sort of lesser premiers, as it were, trying to defend the government. Uh, in this case, we've had, you know, a series of changes of premier, but it, there's really no sense, I, I don't think, of a kind of a, a panic around that. 
or some kind of sense that we've got a worse premier now than we had maybe last election or the election before. Uh, I don't think that this is a government that is um, fundamentally weaker than um, than the one at the last election. Um, you know, and you'd expect that after after twelve years that governments would look look tired, but in some ways. This government is now in a stronger position. You remember the last election, there were all those infrastructure projects that were not completed, that were running over budget, that were, you know, things were being uh, predicted to fall apart and so on. Whereas a lot of those infrastructure projects are now in place. And sure, there are others that would be annoying people, but a lot of them are annoying people in, um, it seems to me, in labour seats, at least, if you look at the, you know, the banks down line and the disruption there i mean you know the liberals are never going to win banks down um, or canterbury and so i think in some ways it, it is a different election from the types of election we've seen uh, in new south wales certainly in the post-war period where um, there's been uh, a dominant premier who's left and then it's been a bit shaky from then on um, this is a rather different position and it's also different to like i mean we had the victorian election a few months ago right and like Andrews has been there for eight years and is that very dominant figure. And it's funny because two of those three premiers who've resigned were effectively pushed out by ICAC, Um, yet it doesn't, there's not as much of a smell of scandal and kind of ricketiness to the government as you might expect of a government that's lost two premiers to ICAC, you know, that it kind of, it felt refreshed by those changes in leadership, even though that happened in that circumstance. Maybe part of it is that particularly with O'Farrell, it was that the scale of the offence was not as great as maybe some other ones could be. It's worth pausing for a second to think how remarkable it is that that, that is the context, and I agree with Rodney, that that does feel to be the sort of, you know, the vibe. Um, but if you think back to a couple of years ago when Gladys Berejiklian was, was still the Premier through COVID, the sort of remarkable popularity that, that she enjoyed and the sort of, you know, the cult of, 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 of Gladys, and then... You, when when she she resigned, Dominic Perrottet came in as and was sort of badged as this kind of you know, he he was the first sort of right faction leader that this government has, has had and was sort of you know described as such as this kind of very conservative right wing guy who who was going to struggle in New South Wales and he's to give him his credit I suppose done a remarkable job of changing that impression with the electorate I think. And sort of presenting himself as a much more pragmatic, um, centrist leader, and I just think it's a really, you know, interesting dynamic that that he's managed to achieve that coming off the back of what was an extraordinarily popular leader. It's funny. Um, I remember when I started first year of uni at U- University of Sydney in two thousand and four. And uh, you'd hear about the Perrottet brothers. They were like, they'd been around in student politics and they they had just a part of the scene. Like they were not there at the same time as me, but uh, Charlie and Dom Perrottet were names you heard of, but you knew that they were not just liberals, but they were very, very right-wing liberals. And yet he's been able to, like you said, and I think it also says something about what, what the rest of the government is, but he's been able to be a very conservative man who's led quite a moderate liberal government. Um and maybe we can talk about that for a minute, both about him as a person, but the government, which I feel like at some point we need to talk about Matt Keane, who's kind of the the standard bearer of that more moderate um, wing of the party. And I think he's quite a, I mean, he's a treasurer. A treasurer is always a really important job, but feels like a quite a powerful treasurer in a government, like about as dominant as a figure who's not the premier can be sometimes in one of these governments. That's obviously very deliberate, right? Because you have this context, this election where 
the government is, is, I suppose, sort of protecting the furniture on two different levels, right? You have the sort of the Western Sydney marginal seats that they need to hang on to and some of the seats sort of, you know, in the Hunter and further south. But then you also have this sort of looming unknown threat in the eastern suburbs and the northern beaches from the, the sort of teal independence. And Matt Keane is obviously, that's his job to protect that sort of heartland where where his MPs, you know, the sort of moderate MPs, um, uh, are, you know, potentially at risk. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's very obviously a sort of deliberate tactic to put Matt Keane forward to talk about, you know, things like um, rebates on uh, IVF and, um, you know, ambitious cl- climate emissions targets, to talk about those things in those electorates. And then in Western Sydney, where maybe doing Perite is seen as a, a stronger electoral asset, they're talking more about, you know, relief on electricity bills and we're definitely going to build this big wall around Warragamba Dam. It's it, There are sort of two messages that are being told simultaneously and, and Perite and, and Keane both have the job of selling one themselves. It seems to be working for them right now, but I, I am curious about where it comes from that the Liberal Party in New South Wales at a state level has tended to be quite moderate. And Rodney, I don't know if you have any perspective from past governments, but like... John Howard, Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison, they've all come from New South Wales. They've all been very right-wing prime ministers. Um, uh, but, you know, and it's clearly not just about the person. It's not just clearly about the personality of the person in the job because otherwise Don Perrette would have been a shift away from the sort of Berejiklian O'Farrell style. But they have taken a niche that is quite substantially more moderate than what federal liberals have done, which probably works for them now with the teal threat, but uh, it predated the teals by quite a long way. Yeah, it did. And I think you can go back to, um, if you, <laughs> depends how far you want to go back, but you can certainly go back to uh, the premiership of Nick Griner as an example of of that, uh, who was, you know, famously described himself as, um, and I'll get it right, dry on economic issues, but, you know, warm on social issues. And I think his cabinet certainly pursued a very strong um, you know, economic rationalist, as we used to call it, agenda, a very strong managerial agenda, trimming, you know, cutting back the public sector, reducing government services, privatisation, contracting out and so on. But at the same time, continued in many ways, the kind of socially progressive um, elements of the, um, of the, of the previous, um, of the previous government, of the RAND government. Uh, and, and I think we've seen that in, in the choice of opposition leaders, um, when, when the um, Liberal Party was in opposition, even through that period, there was only one period when there was some, you know, an opposition leader from well outside that kind of more moderate um, faction, if you like, of the Liberal Party. So it does seem to be the case that while New South Wales throws up right-wing Liberal Prime Ministers, it tends to produce more um, centrist or more nuanced, perhaps is the word I'm looking for, um, across different policy areas, uh, premiers. And so... Yeah, while Perrottet's instincts are clearly quite conservative, um, he's, you know, harnessed those. Uh, he's, you know, got those <laughs> to some extent um, under control. And, and the fact that Matt Keane is there as, uh, in, the, in the incredibly important role as treasurer um, has no doubt helped with that. Can we talk for a sec about Chris Minns? Uh, he's not a particularly dramatic figure. When he came to the job, it kind of gave a bit of a, of, of a fresh air, potentially a bit more capable than some of the people in that job. But I also think we sometimes judge people based on how they're doing when it's outside factors going on. But what do we think of Mins? Like he could become the premier, but 
it doesn't feel like that's going to happen through the force of his personality or anything. The word that I sort of think of about the opposition under Chris Means is, is disciplined. They've managed to sort of put aside a lot of the, um, you know, the internal bloodletting that was going on through the years of, of Jody McKay and going back to John Robertson, Michael Daly, cast of opposition leaders we've seen. Mm, probably going back to Morris Yemmer, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. They've hewed a, a much more sort of narrow-focused line, and I think that's helped the Mins. When he came into opposition leader, was very sort of insistent on not being a kind of hectoring opposition leader, right? He wanted to present himself as as a sort of serious opposition leader who was going to put forward ideas and whatever. I mean, I think Chris Mins himself is interesting because he comes into Parliament as a sort of bomb thrower, right? He, he's challenged for the leadership a, a few times before he, he he got it. He was sort of poking at the the party to be more sort of um, ambitious on things like drug law reform when he was uh, competing against uh, Jody McKay the first time. Um, he wanted to, you know, ban fossil fuel donations. He was sort of hunting that kind of, that headline that I'm a sort of progressive thinker. And then he became opposition leader and hewed to a much more focused line. The thing about this Labour opposition is, is while they've been disciplined, I don't think they've kind of yet managed to capture the imagination of the electorate, which is hard in state politics anyway. But um, I don't know if they've sort of yet got to the point where it feels like people know what a men's Labour government would look like. And I also, I also think if they were to win government, one of the... The problems that Chris Mins has is that in that process of, you know, trying to become the leader for since, you know, 2019, he's made a lot of people in the Labor Party quite annoyed, right? So while they're, they're very disciplined and loyal now, if they got into government and things got a little bit difficult, I could see the wheels starting to, to fall off pretty quickly. The one advantage that Chris Mins has had over his two predecessors, at least, is he's had longer in, in the position of, of opposition leader. He has had some opportunity to um, make himself known to the New South Wales public. It's very difficult if you're opposition leader to do that, but at least he's had um, far longer than Michael Daly or uh, Luke Foley had to do that. Um, and, and he, you know, while there was, you know, a mini crisis, it's always a mini crisis when you change opposition leaders, but it wasn't the same sort of crisis as it was when, uh, when Foley and Daly came into the into the position. So, you know, there was a sort of a manufactured crisis about Labor had to win the upper hundred by-election, which it was never going to win. Um, so it was kind of constructed crisis that then, uh, you know, Jody McKay failed that sort of completely false test of, um, of where Labor was travelling. And so, you know, but he came in earlier and has had the opportunity to settle things down, as Mick says. Um, now, he has made a lot of enemies. And by the same token, if you look at the front bench uh, that's likely to come in, you know, some of them are very good performers, but you can see that there's going to be potential for some underperformance there. And that's, again, that's not necessarily unusual. Ran had the same problem when he came in, uh, but Ran was far stronger leader, much better known um, when he came in in 76. So I think there are some problems for Chris Minns uh, if, he, if he does become premier but by the same token i think he's in a better position as an opposition leader than uh, than either of his at least two most immediate predecessors 
One of the distinct things about the state election is the wide range of independents and minor parties seriously contesting seats. In the lower house, there are 10 crossbenchers running for re-election, including three Greens members. There are also a number of other prominent independents running in both Labor and Liberal seats. Meanwhile, in the upper house, the Greens, One Nation, Animal Justice, the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers, they'll all be defending their seats, while other parties like Legalised Cannabis will be hoping to break through. Rodney, how does this election compare to past New South Wales elections in terms of how prominent the minor party and independent players are? They're certainly more prominent than they have been in recent elections and that's because of the position that they start off in as, as you said at the outset you know the, the government is technically in minority so the government needs to to win seats to form a majority labor needs to win seats to form the majority government in some ways neither of those two scenarios look entirely convincing and so that uh, there ought to be a lot of attention on the crossbench uh, at this election you know sometimes there's more attention on independents and minor parties than there ought to be because, you know, we know the outcome is going to mean that they're, they're reasonably irrelevant. But in this, in this election, it strikes me that they're not. As you say, you've got um, independents and minor parties uh, members defending their lower house seats. That's an unusual, for so many of them to be doing that is unusual. You've got to look back a fair way to see, you know, another example of, of, of that, probably 1991 when there were you know, a bunch of independents that came in in 88 after Griner was swept to power and Labor was on the nose and it was losing seats like Balmain to uh, Dawn Fraser and so on. Um, of course, it doesn't hold Balmain now, so there was a portent there. You know, it doesn't look like that's an, you know, scenario because a number of them were swept out of their seats at the next election, including Dawn Fraser. Um, but by the same token, there are some very experienced um, independents and minor party figures in in the parliament who we can expect if uh, it is a hung parliament will play you know a very active role pursuing um, different policy agendas and and different re- reform agendas. And we've seen a little bit of that already, particularly with Alex Greenwich uh, in the um, legislative assembly towards the end of um, this parliament. So um, th- th- those are the existing. Um, independents and, and minor parties. And then you've got the um, new challenges, uh, some, of wh- some of whom are uh, loosely under that kind of teal banner. I think they're less likely to be successful, to be honest, than the teals were in the federal election. Most of them haven't started campaigning as far out from the election. Seems to me they're not as well resourced in most cases as the federal teals were. Um, having said that, there are one or two seats at least which have a history of being independent, uh, that there are kind of teal quote-unquote um, independence contesting, and I'm thinking there particularly of Manly, which is, of course has a, has a rich history of um, uh, on and off being an independent um, seat. North Shore. North Shore would be the other one, yeah. So I think those two would be the ones to watch. I think most of the others are probably less likely to be uh, as interesting as perhaps some people think. Going purely off what I'm told from people in the coalition here, I suppose Manly, I think, is the one that they are most concerned about. I also think Wakehurst, which is not a Teal candidate, but, but Michael Regan, the uh, the mayor there, is a possibility. Um, and the other one, which is maybe a bit uh, of a less certain, but, but, but Pitwater has come up a few times in conversations as a seat that, the coalition is a little bit worried about. I think in, in Wakehurst and Pitwater, particularly, the the dynamic of having you know, both of the local members, so Brad Hazard and, and Rob Stokes, very popular local members, very well known, 
you know, ministers throughout this sort of coalition government are both retiring. You have new um, candidates coming in. There is that sort of fear of, well, how much was the, the vote, a, a vote for Rob Stokes? And, you know, there is that sort of element at play. I, I agree generally with, with Ronnie that the, the sort of teal factor is probably less likely to be significant than it, w- it was in the federal election. It's just a much, much harder election for them to succeed in for policy reasons in terms of just how this government is perceived versus the, the former Morrison government. And also the specific you know, campaigning in New South Wales for an independent is much harder. There are tougher financial restrictions, optional preferencing. It's, it's just a more difficult road to walk. Um, there are, I think, a couple of other seats um, where it could be interesting. Willoughby, uh, which is Glasgow Dickens' former seat, which is taken over by Tim James, um, I think could be could be interesting. Um, and also Wallandilly, which is in uh, Western Sydney, which is held by uh, Liberal Nathaniel Smith, he's also up against an independent there. Um, that could be a, an interesting race as well. All those ones you're mentioning are really interesting, Mick, and I think there is a bit of a thing where it's like most of them will probably lose, but if so many of them are all picking away at the coalition, what does that do to their campaign? Does one of them kind of sneak through? One of the other things to say about the Teals as well, of course, is the government is different, right? This is a government that actually is interested in responding to their issues and sort of taking up the challenge. And indeed, I think it was last night, we're recording on Monday, I think last night on Sunday, there was a poll that came out saying the government's position on environmental issues had improved over the last couple of months. Their polling was a bit better. You know, frankly, Scott Morrison had the opportunity to do those things in federal politics and just refused to do it, right? Like he had the opportunity to go, we're in trouble on these issues, we're going to try and address them. Might have been harder for him to do that, but he just didn't do it. Um, A government that sees the threat and responds to it presumably will do better than what Morrison did. And I think that is part of what we're seeing now. Um, I mean, they're, they're a bit better on those issues already, but um, they are also, you know, they have brains. They're looking at the polls too. They're looking at the threats and responding. Um, and I would mention that group of what I've called mayor independents, which are not Teals. You mentioned Michael Regan. We still don't know if Frank Carbone is going to run in Cabramatta, but his party... Uh, on local council dominates Fairfield Council. They won a federal seat last year and admittedly uh, they got some fortuitous circumstances there. But if he runs in Cabramatta, that would be interesting. I'm not sure that someone endorsed by him in Fairfield, we still don't know the name of that person, will be a factor. There's a mayor running in Shell Harbour against Labor, who's, again, I think probably Labor will be fine there. But Labor's had a lot of trouble in Fairfield and Cabramatta. They still haven't pre-selected for Fairfield. They pre-selected for Cabramatta really late. That area is just a mess for them. Um, and so I think that's one worth watching. And I would also mention the ex-shooters in the three Western New South Wales seats, all of whom are now independents. Basically, the whole lower house part of the party kind of rebelled against the leadership in the upper house. But the way the party works, they didn't have the votes to choose a new leader. And... Um, now they're all indies. I think they have a good chance of getting re-elected, but we don't really know. They haven't been there very long. And then the upper house as well. Greens Greens have one seat. They'll definitely win back the second seat that they lost when a member became an independent. Uh, one Nation have a good chance of winning two seats. Mark Latham, who um, is the One Nation leader, has resigned his seat after four years to contest a new seat. Um, may help them a little bit. He got the highest below the line vote last election. So it might end up One Nation with four seats and his running mate is Tanya Mirlook, the former, uh, well, still current member for Bankstown. 
Uh, the shooters will probably hold their seat. Uh, Fred Nile, there was a story the other day that he's coming back to run. Turns out he's only running as the number two on an independent ticket headed up by his wife. I don't think either of them will win. Um, Animal Justice are defending one seat. And then finally, there is a lot of these other small left-wing parties popping up that might be a bit of a problem for the Greens. Elizabeth Farrelly as a public education party. And then I think literally in the last 24 hours, uh, Jeremy Buckingham, the former Greens MLC, has been announced that he's running for the Legalised Cannabis Party, who uh, polled 4% in the Victorian election. They have a popular name. People vote for them when they turn up on the ballot. They have a good shot too. So it's a complicated field, lots of different players. I feel like we could end up with big, complex crossbenchers in both houses that will be both messy possibly to form a government but deal with in the upper house as well. I think, yeah, the two houses are very different in their dynamics. So I think it's independence or local notable side from the Greens, the lower house, and in the upper house, it's the party name. So I think, you know, you can have a kind of a well-known candidate on your ticket in the um, in the Legislative Council, but it doesn't bring you much joy because you've got to win those votes across the state. So it's really the party names that are important in the Legislative Council. And, and it is interesting, I forget the ex- exact name of it, but the Legalised Marijuana Party, um, uh, it's interesting how successful they've been in uh, WA and Vic- Victoria, um, and that's clearly on the name, right? They were the highest polling party that didn't win any seats in the federal election as well. Yeah, so it's not Jeremy Buckingham may help them marginally, uh, um, may may take the however many votes it was that he won last time as an independent running for the Legislative Council, but the main thing will be be the name there. And I think just going back to the Legislative Assembly, I think you're right about that, you know, what I see when you look at the successful independence in New South Wales, generally speaking, you've got to be a local notable for some reason, either through local government or through getting in on, on a party label. And then, but, you know, you've been you know notable enough to have won that pre-selection. And so I think we really only do need to look at the local notables as really sort of strong chances. And in some ways, some of them are relatively easy to deal with. If we think about Greg Piper, the member for um, Lake Macquarie, I mean, he's been there, what, how long now? Um, 12 years, it must be, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he's not he's not in the same mould as an Alex Greenwich. He's not a crusader for particular things. He just wants good stuff done in his electorate. And so he may be, you know, independence like that, those mayoral independents, if I can put it that way, um, are probably going to be easier to deal with than if, if, for example, you know, you're dealing with, say, the Greens or you're dealing with um, the Shooters, uh, uh, Fishers and Farmers, or you're dealing with, you know, One Nation or whatever. So because there's much less of an agenda there other than a kind of a local agenda. It is funny. Piper could be that character who you see when there's a hung parliament who's just been in the lower house for ages. Their votes never mattered, but they've been chugging away, doing their thing. They're super experienced and they know everyone. And then bang, all of a sudden, all the cameras turn on them. Uh, You could imagine someone like Greg Piper, Greenwich. I think there could be a right wing of the crossbench and a left wing of the crossbench. And depending on how close one side gets or the other, there could be a few people who find themselves kind of smack in the middle in the same way that in 2010, it was Windsor and Oakshot that uh, were, found themselves in that position. The crossbench was bigger, but they were kind of the middle of the crossbench. In the federal parliament, yeah, that's right. But remember also going back to the 1991 election, it was Windsor again initially who held the balance of power, and he was a very different figure then. I mean, what did he want? He wanted the rail line extended back up to his electorate, and he wanted you know local things to be happening. I mean, he picked up the reform agenda 
uh, much later in his career. So he began as that kind of figure. It's not to say that, that which is to say that independences start off as kind of local independence may develop an agenda as, as things move along. On that sort of possibly very large crossbench, if you look at the way polling is suggesting an election might go, there's a good chance that you could be in a sort of maximum chaos zone. I think you and I have discussed this before, Ben, where if Labor only manages to pick up sort of four or five seats and you have both parties kind of in this precarious position on 40-odd seats dealing with this sort of wildly different crossbench with, you know, Alex Greenwich on one side and and the shooters on the other side. I think, though, what will be interesting is during the most recent parliament, Greenwich, uh, Greg Piper and and Joe McGurr actually have worked quite closely together and quite effectively together to, to get what they want, even though they have sort of possibly you know different politics but in the situation where you have both major parties in a minority competing for Alex Grange's vote and Greg Piper's vote they will find themselves in an interesting position because they've been quite happy and effective at working with the coalition and I think have found that to be beneficial for them but the demographics of both of their seats probably skew closer to the ALP than maybe the coalition um, in terms of voter profile um, I mean, Labor Macquarie in the, in the Hunter is maybe a little bit borderline, but it's, it's a pretty strong Labor area broadly. So I think they'll find themselves in an interesting position about where they go. And it might depend on how close someone is to, to winning. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Rodney and Mick, for joining me. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, Mick. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom.mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.